Hello, and welcome to the Wheel of Crime podcast. This podcast is ran by two ladies who play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Also, this podcast does cover topics of sensitive nature, and as such, listener discretion is advised. to the wheel of crime podcast my name is jen and i am emily yes welcome welcome back it's been a week now since our (laughs) website has been up hopefully some of you guys have had the chance to look at it yes if you didn't know we launched our website last week it's www.wheelofcrime.com yes yes and it's and it's super cool i can vouch for that yeah you should go check it out if you haven't already. And even if you have, go uh, go check it out again. Yeah, why not? You never not? know. Just full send it. And then... Just for the hell of it. Yeah. Well, how has your week been other than obvi- ob- the obvious things like the weather and, you know, all that jazz? Any- <laughs> like anything cool? Um, Not really. This week went by really quick, which, hey, that was okay with me. Um... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like, I've noticed that, too. I don't know if it's, like, an age thing, but time seems to go by very quickly compared to how it used to. It really does. And it honestly, if I think about it for too long, it makes me really anxious. So I try not to. You know? Honestly, I also understand that. If if, if I'm being honest, yeah, I get that. Um, I'm like, wow, how the fuck um, am I already, like, 24 years old? Like, that doesn't... That doesn't seem right. That seems very sus. See, to me, I think those same thoughts and I'm like, what's sus is I feel like I should have done more by now. (laughs) Right? Oh my God. Don't even get me started. Well, and that's the thing too. It's like, okay, sure. I've done like a fair amount, but like it doesn't still feel like enough. But then on the other end too, I do look at like some people who are like, you know, quite a bit older and haven't really gone much further past and i'm like you know maybe that's just how it is maybe that's the life to live mm, i don't know <laughs> maybe that that's depressing. the life to live it is very depressing um but yeah no i'm trying to think if there was anything new for my week but that was honestly not much either things time does go by really quickly though i did notice that a lot this week but that and people are very weirdly happy so it start making me start to think that <laughs> seasonal depression might just be like a collective feeling. <laughs> um I personally would agree with that. I am feeling a lot happier now that the weather has uh the weather. decided to warm up. I the also, weather. Yeah. Constant topic of discussion on this podcast. Yep, it's it's one consistent thing in all of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one consistent thing but yeah no uh, but that's like my whole thing too because i it's 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 weird because you'll meet people and they'll be like oh yeah i suffer from seasonal depression but like i'm i'm starting to think that everybody does like i think that's an every person thing i don't know if there's very many people who wake up in the winter and they're like wow i'm happy that it's cold and dark all the time like i don't think that's a thing that happens <laughs> i think generally speaking um the weather and like the seasons and like it getting dark earlier does have a negative effect on people's mental health. I don't know if it's like all necessarily like seasonal depression because I'm I'm no psychologist, but I feel like the, you you're on to something there, you know? 
Yeah, see, that's that's what I've concluded this week. And in all the seven days it took to have a week, all I've learned is that the time (laughs) goes by quickly and seasonal depression is real. Um, (laughs) Facts. Facts. But on that note, should we start spinning our wheel of questions? We should. I'm so excited to tell you our story for this week. Me too. Did you ever want to be a famous singer or actress when you were younger? Hmm. See, I didn't really want to be a singer because it I, it felt like a lot of work. Like, you would see, <laughs> you'd see people singing and they'd be all, like, sweaty and everything. And I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. But, like... <laughs> But like acting, sweaty for me. it would be fake sweat. And I'm okay with fake sweat. I feel like that's manageable. So I don't know. I would say mm. as a kid, I probably pictured myself more as like an actor someday than I did a singer. But like, was do you think that's something you're like, yeah, when I grow up, I'm going to be a, a famous actress? You see, I feel like when it came to like being a kid and like, I'm going to be this one day, I didn't really have like a... <laughs> An answer. I was like, I don't know. There's a lot of things out there. I'll be something. <laughs> I'll be alive. Yeah. I'll be living. <laughs> you do be living. Yep. And that is confirmed. That was like my only plan. But my mom does like to tell a story where, uh, whenever pe- well, there was a period of time where anybody, a- if anybody asked me that question, because I feel like when you're in elementary school, people like ask that question a lot to see if you say like ballerina or you know whatever. But uh, yeah, I guess at some point. Anytime somebody asked me that question, I would just tell them that I'm going to be a rabbit. Oh. Yep. Fun. Which, like, now that I'm an adult, I'm sad that's not really a career choice. I could be the Easter Bunny, but I feel like that's not what I was picturing when I was a kid. (laughs) I'm just picturing you as the Easter Bunny, and that feels really iconic, and, like, we need to make that happen somehow. <laughs> I'm okay. See, whenever I think of the Easter Bunny now, I just think of Zipper from Animal Crossing, and now I just find yeah. the whole thing repulsive. No, thank you. Oh, my God. That's really funny. Oh, <laughs> uh, Emily is Zipper. I, I could see it happening. Two, two peas in a pod. Iconic. Yep. It's actually exactly. me inside the bunny suit. That's why there's a zipper on the back. Oh my god, mystery solved, guys. What, what? Uh, it took a year, but we figured it out. Eventually. We figured it out eventually. But uh, what about yourself, though? Did you ever want to be, like, a a singer or a uh, actor? I feel like you know the answer to this question. Yes, like And the, the answer is <laughs> yes, I wanted to be both. I was convinced in, like, elementary school, that I was going to be the next Hilary Duff. Uh, <laughs> I was about to say, I feel like your sensation. goals were more, like, you were going to be a celebrity. Like, it wasn't, it, it was, like, both because you were, like, yeah, because I'm going to be famous. <laughs> I honestly thought, I was, like, I'm going to be a famous singer and actress when I grow up. Like, that is my life. I'm preparing now. I remember I used to fucking autograph things and be like, hold on to this. It's going to be worth a lot someday. Oh my god. I do not own a single thing with a Jennifer autograph on it. Now I want one. Uh, that phase passed before middle school. No. So thankfully. I've never been so upset about anything in my whole life. And literally, I um was a New Year's baby for those of you who don't know, of, you know, in my general area. So I 
they like covered me in like the local newspaper and like the local TV station. So that's at the where times. it started. You were like, so, I've been famous since day one. Catch me in the yeah. newspaper. <laughs> right? So I used to go up, according to my parents, I used to go up to people like when I was like three or four years old and be like, Hi, my name's Jen. Uh, I'm famous. Did you know that? <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. Like, random strangers at Burger King, I would go up and be like, I'm famous? You're welcome. And there's just this, like, old man, he's like, did you know that she's famous? And my parents thought it was hilarious, of course. Of course they did. Yep. That, I can see that. I, I can really picture that in my mind. In my mind's eye. I'm embarrassed for me. I'm kind of happy about it. Not gonna lie. Mm. It's definitely embarrassing, but I'm kind of happy about it. Yeah, not my uh, not my best moment, but it is what it is. See, it's like um, my brother was in the news or like local newspaper when I think he was like six years old because he went to like a little science fair and like shoved a whole yogurt onto his face or something. Like I can't remember what mm-hmm. exactly it was, but basically it was just him on the front of the newspaper smiling, like covered in yogurt. And I was like, mm, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> that's my brother there's the bro that that's my bro yep uh on that note should we spin for our next question yes spin again my friend question number one what are your thoughts on momagers do you know what that is yeah it's like a kim kim kardashian family people's they called the what's her face the momager yeah chris jenner is like a momager but it's yeah basically just like a mom who manages her 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 talented young young one see i'm not quite sure how i feel about it like i guess i understand i understand it but it also doesn't really sit right with me like i feel like there needs to be a little bit of like a a barrier sometimes between a professional relationship and having like a personal relationship with somebody it's like uh mm-hmm. like i work with my fiance so i guess like that would be an example also of like a a personal relationship that's also a professional relationship but i feel like when it's like a mom versus a child thing like that's like somebody you're also raising at the same time so there's kind of like a weird level of professionalism that i think maybe a kid doesn't need to be seeing from a parent at that age does that kind of make sense yeah, I think it's, like, a power imbalance, you know? It's, yeah. It's, like, usually as, like, an artist or whatever, you obviously want to take your manager's advice most of the time, but you have usually the option to say no to things or to decide to go a different way. Mm-hmm. But I think that, like, line gets a lot more blurry when it's also your mom because, you know... Especially yeah, when maybe... you're a kid and you can't really say no. Yeah, and maybe there's some things that you would tell... See, that's the thing, too. So I feel like normally in those types of relationships, you need to kind of see yourself as being on the same level so that you can kind of speak for yourself sometimes, but also be in a position where you can take their advice and not be and not feel like they're being controlling. Whereas like with a parent relationship, you want to listen to them and they want you to listen to them and do whatever it is that they want you to do. It's not really like you can speak up for yourself because then it's it's like what Mm -hmm. you're saying. It's a weird power thing where it's like, okay, well, you're my child, like you're stupid and young i'm just gonna do this for you like it's just like a 
a thing, I think, but... But then I also don't know. I've never been around one. I know. I think it's definitely one of those um, weird situations to be in. I would definitely agree. Yeah. But I guess uh, what are your thoughts? Or or did you kind of already share them? I feel like I, I covered what I wanted yeah. to say. Um, I feel pretty similar to you on yeah. that front. That's That's Gucci. All right. Let's spin for our next question. Would you ever want to be a famous Hollywood actress? Maybe. I don't know. I think that if somebody wanted you to act and they liked how you performed, I guess then, sure. There's a lot of opportunities you could get through those types of things that might be like, you know beneficial opportunity wise but like for the most part also no i'm a big privacy person and i don't really love how there's always like the whole like side of hollywood that's always obsessed about what people's business is so i don't really love that but i don't know it's it's a lot of opportunity but at the same time you're also giving up a lot so i'm not really sure see i i would agree with you i feel like because i still work in the film biz but Mm -hmm. obviously not in hollywood um i think like one thing that i've learned from that is that uh i love working in film but i would never want to be famous i just Mm -hmm. feel like that's not a good vibe (laughs) you would have no privacy and it seems like it'd be fun but i feel like a lot of those people are really lonely Oh, for sure. Yeah. And well, that's the whole thing, too, is that when you are in that position, there's a lot of people who would also want to take advantage of that because they would mm-hmm. see the types of opportunities that you can bring to, like, you know, other people. And so it's like what you're saying, you would end up probably with not very many friends, depending on your situation or not being able to speak with your family if, like, they are weird about it. And, like, like I, it's kind mm-hmm. of going back to what I said before, like, the, there are those types of sacrifices that come along with it that you may not necessarily know about unless you were in that situation. And I feel like most people aren't really, like, understanding of the types of sacrifices that people have to make if they are, like, a a household name, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And if I was, I would fight for my privacy big time. I would be, like, like, do you remember that time period where Daniel Radcliffe would, like, just wear the same clothes every day and then, like, actively hide from (laughs) from the press? That would be me. The Like, I'd be like, no, today... Today's my day. I'm going to fuck with you. No, not the other <laughs> way around. And it would just be me every day. Honestly, that's quite the mood, though. I, I'm fully supportive of that. Oh, yeah, I totally get it. Like, and that's the whole thing, too. I I do laugh a little bit when I see these different things about, like, what celebrities do to keep their privacy because I totally understand. Like, I totally mm-hmm. get it. And I'm like, yeah, you do you, boo. Whatever you want. You can have it. Mm-hmm. Underground tunnels? Send her. Like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> I completely understand and support you in that. Yeah, exactly, right? Okay, we are on to our last question then. All right. Do you think that fame, money, and fortune can corrupt people? Yes. (laughs) I do. And And I also think that it can change a person, but not everybody. I think that if you have, if you base a lot of your identity around what you make, that it will change you. But if Mm -hmm. you just consider it as like another aspect of life that you have to work in order to have a job 
And but having a job means you make an income and having an income means that you pay for things and probably not so much. I don't know. I also feel like it's hard to know if like it's going to change who you are as a person until you're in that situation. Mm-hmm. Well, and having money attracts certain types of people too is the other thing. Absolutely. And I, I just feel like it, it would be hard to stay true to your values because I think like having a, like large amounts of money would put you in positions that you would never have been in before. And it's hard to mm-hmm. know if how you would react in those situations. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And like what I was saying about like, it attracts certain type of people too. It attracts literally all kinds of people. You don't, it's, you, it turns into a game of not like who can you trust, but like how many of these people want certain things from me and kind of picking who you want to have around you for like what they want from you, which like, I don't really like that game. I don't like that whole idea. Mm-mm. I, I, that's going to be a no for me. Well, it would be very hard to have, like, a genuine relationship, I think, for people who do have lots of money. But not saying it isn't impossible, but. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's pretty much my thoughts on that, though. But I will say that it does seem like, for the most part, that money does corrupt people. And it might not be the person who's earning it, but the people around them, too. Like, say... I know there's a big one with, like, child actors. If they were a famous child actor and they made a lot of money versus, like, their parents who either have, like, jealousy problems or, like, other things going on. And, like, it's definitely, like, I think a big thing for your community if you have one person who just starts making, like, boatloads of money. I would agree. I think especially with going off of what you're talking about with child actors, like when you put them in the breadwinner position as Mm -hmm. a parent, I feel like that just creates a very difficult um, relationship and it makes it really hard to set boundaries Mm -hmm. and maintain, like maintain that like mother, daughter, father, son, or like parent child relationship. Yeah. And like, so the one I'm thinking of is, um, I can't quite remember her name, but the girl who played, ducky in the land before time her father Mm. ended up murdering her and her mother and then uh killing himself over how much yeah over how much money she was making because i guess there was this whole thing where he was jealous that she was earning this much money and there was problems because she wasn't able to keep anything that she was earning it was just going straight to her parents and so i guess like like that definitely created a very awful dynamic but then my part though is like as a parent like i'm thinking from the position if i in some weird distant future have a child who's going to be famous like i (laughs) i would have their money like in whatever kind of account it is where they can't access it until they're like older you know i would keep my job i would have my partner keep their job i wouldn't just like absorb their income as my income you know Yeah, and I think um, it's a lot better now. I know, like, certain companies, like Disney, for example, Mm -hmm. a lot of their, like, um, child actors on their, like, live shows, their money goes into a, like, a a portion of their money goes into a trust Mm -hmm. for them that they can only access once they've turned whatever age. So, um, I think that's definitely gotten a bit better, but I feel like there's still, like, a lot of... uh, Work questionable things happening especially with like youtubers and stuff 
YouTubers is a big one. Um, I actually was just reading into... It happened a while ago now, but it, there was, like, a little scandal with uh, a page where it was, like, a bunch of young girls and they would do, like, skits together. I can't... Mm-hmm. I think there was, like, seven of them. It, I, I can't remember the name. But basically what had happened was, um, like, the look that the channel gave was that it was seven girls who were all friends and they would do skits together. What it mm-hmm. actually was is they actually had, like, an older man who was in his 50s who hired them all to do these skits together. And he was the person who was running the YouTube channel. So then there, yeah. So there was this big issue where the income that was being made off the page never actually went to the girls. It went to the guy who would then pay them like a wage. Oh, it gets worse. And then because of that whole thing, and because he was technically their like unofficial manager type position guy, because he was literally just like hiring in these girls, basically. There were issues where he would force them to, like, change in front of him into, like, these childish outfits. Like, it was a whole Ew. thing. A whole thing. I know, and I was reading I about it. not like that. No. Well, that's why I'm glad you brought up the YouTube thing, because I was like, apparently, like, it's very prominent, and the one I'm telling you about, I believe the page was only shut down in, like, 2019. Like, that's still really recent. Yeah, that's yucky. Mm-hmm. I know, I really wish I could remember what the page was called, but... I'm not sure. It wasn't, like, a... It's not, like, a kind of page where, like, say, like, people our age would be watching. It was more for kids to watch. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of that because, like, the child regulations that Hollywood has to deal with or, like, film and TV has to deal with now doesn't apply to those, like, new media kind of platforms. Mm -hmm. So, it's, like, a very uh, gray area right now and I definitely feel like they should get on putting some regulations in play there oh 100 and like my whole big thing about it that bothers me is that then you have all these icky people who know that in the regular industry you wouldn't be able to get away with this stuff who mm-hmm. intentionally are doing this because they can get away with it you know i oh, know it's na- nasty super nasty but uh i am i guess i'll guess and see what your story is today because i have no idea um, obviously it's about a celebrity, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, and that's all I can figure. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. Wow. I am very excited to tell you about this story today. So let me just get right into it. Okay, I'm ready. So today I'm going to tell you the story of Brittany Ann Murphy. Have you ever heard of her? Uh, I don't think so. At least don't recognize the name. Okay, well, she's an icon. Um, but let me tell you about her. She's an icon. Okay. So she was born in Atlanta, Georgia to Sharon Kathleen Murphy and Angelo Joseph Bird. Berletio. He's Italian. I can't pronounce that name. I'm mm-hmm. very sorry. Um, <laughs> and her parents divorced when she was two years old. Brittany's mother was or is of Irish and Slovakian descent and her father is of Italian descent. She was raised a Baptist and later became a non-denominational Christian. She had two older half-brothers and a younger half-sister She was raised primarily by her mother in Edson, New Jersey, 
And she didn't really have much of a relationship with her father growing up. Okay. So growing up in Edson, Brittany said her first words at six months, according to her aunt, Deba, but she didn't walk until she was nearly 15 months old. Sharon described her as an outgoing child who loved to sing and dance, and she got her showbiz start in school and at a local theater starring in the musical Really Rosie at age nine. After that performance, Sharon recalled Britney told a local TV station, I'm going to get an agent and do commercials and work in New York. Then I'm going to move to Los Angeles, be in movies in Hollywood, and then come back and do Broadway. Then I'll probably have a huge musical career. I'm going to change the world. Mm, big words. She was ambitious. That's Very iconic. ambitious. That sounds like something you would have said. Pff, right? like literally everything that she just said sounds like something that you would have said at some point i know (sighs) we aren't gonna talk about that (laughs) so she attended Vern fowler school of dance and theater arts in new jersey in 1982 and from the age of four she trained in singing dancing and acting Prior to her enrolling at Edson High School at the age of 13, the family moved to Los Angeles in 1991 so that Brittany could pursue a career in acting. Brittany said her mother never tried to stifle her creativity and she considered her mother a crucial factor in her later success. Brittany was quoted as saying, When I asked my mom to move to California, she sold everything and moved out here for me. She always believed in me. Brittany made her Broadway debut in 1997 as Catherine in the revival of Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge opposite veteran actors Anthony LaPelagia and Allison Janney. And she landed her first job in Hollywood when she was 13, starring as Brenda Drexel in the series Drexel's Class. Sharon, her mom, worked hard at being a single mother and her aunt Deb said, I don't think she forced Brittany into showbiz stuff. Brittany wanted to do it. Brittany's agent or manager for a decade recalled meeting her when she was 16 and being struck by her energy, talent, and how close she and her mother were. The agent, Joanne Colonia, said they were adorable together. They finished each other's sentences, they were bright and bubbly, and that relationship never changed. Brittany then went on to play Molly Morgan in the Tor Coulson's spinoff, Almost Home, and Brittany also guest starred on several TV series, including Parker Lewis Can't Lose, Blossom, Sequest 2032, Murder One, and Frasier. She also had reoccurring roles on Sister Sister, Party of Five, and Boy Meets World. Although, her uh, breakout role was in her second feature film, the teen comedy classic Clueless. Mm, okay. Yeah. She's the like ne- she's like the new girl that uh Cher like gives a makeover to. You've seen the movie, right? No. What? I know what Clueless is, but I've never seen the movie. Oh my god, I need to educate this woman. <laughs> you forget that like between the year 2000 to 2012, I did not watch television. Like, I did not see all these, like, movies that came out or these shows. I didn't watch any of that stuff. 
That's tragic. Anyways, next time you come over, <laughs> we're going to have to watch Clueless because that is just a crime against humanity. Sounds good. <laughs> um, but anyways, Clueless developed a cult following and shortly after Clueless came out in 95, she got into a really bad car accident. So, and it permanently injured her and left her to cope with a reoccurring ache in her jaw. So, regardless of her pain, she had become the family breadwinner and kept on working as hard as ever. She followed Clueless with roles in several other big name and independent feature films. She also voiced two characters in The King of the Hill. Um, She was nominated for an Annie Award for voice acting from the episode Moving On Up in King of the Hill. And then she continued working on feature films into the the 2000s. Uptown Girls, Just Married, Little Black Book, and the critically acclaimed Sin City, just to name a few. Um, And I don't know about you, because you probably haven't fucking seen it, but Uptown Girls was iconic when it came out. Like, that movie slaps. I have no idea what that is. (laughs) That movie slaps, and I will defend that to the end of the earth. I I believe you. I've never seen it or heard of it, but I'm sure it's really, really nice. She also returned to voice acting with a 2006 animated feature, which you probably do know, Happy Feet. She's Gloria the Penguin. Oh, no way. I do know that movie. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Finally (laughs) one you know. Oh, that's funny. Film critic Roger Ebert frequently acclaimed Britney's acting talent and comedy timing, giving good reviews to several of her films and comparing her to the iconic Lucille Ball. So that's kind of a little summary of her film career. She had a lot going on. She was doing a lot of movies in the 90s and 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to kind of touch on Britney's personal life, she didn't date until she was 21 years old. Um, And then she had several long relationships. She had one with Ashton Kutcher for six months after they met on Just Married in 2002. Um, And then she was engaged to Hollywood talent agent Jeff Quanitz for four months in 2004. And then she was engaged to a production assistant that she met on Little Black Book in 2005. So Mm. that was a lot. She, I think, was kind of just figuring her herself out at that point. And then came her whirlwind romance with Simon Monjack. I have no idea who this person is. No one does. Well, I mean, <laughs> people who know what this case do, but... <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Weird. All right. Huh. G- got it. Okay. Um. So, Simon... Uh, her relationship with Simon kind of all started when she phoned him from Tokyo in early 2007 while she was filming a movie called The Ramen Girl, which I've never seen, but that name sounds interesting. The Ramen Girl? Yeah. I don't know. Huh. Don't know. Interesting. But she called to tell Simon how much she liked his script for The White Hotel, which was based on D.M. Thomas' novel, and they agreed to meet when she returned to L.A. for what turned out to be a dinner at Hotel Bel Air. The following week, he went with her to New York, where she was doing publicity for a different film, and from then on, Simon never spent a night away from her except for 
nine days when he was incarcerated by the U.S. Immigration Services for an expired visa. And shortly after that incarceration, on May 5th, 2007, they were married by a rabbi at Brittany's home on Rising Glen Road. Nearly a handful of guests were at Brittany's uh, ceremony were employees and vendors and Simon's best man was Brittany's chauffeur, which mm. seemed strange to all of their family friends. That is strange. And I'm not a family friend or a family or friends. <laughs> right. Um, so Brittany saw Simon as a stocky Englishman with a sexy accent and a deep voice as he portrayed himself a wealthy, educated, cultured filmmaker. He had been born in an affluent London suburb of Hillingdon and grew up in Buckingham, um, Buckinghamshire. His father, William... I really William, thought you were going to say Buckingham Palace, and I was like, this man is lying. There's no <laughs> fucking way. His father, William, had worked in the city of... and. He worked primarily in London's financial district until he got a brain tumor at the age of 29. He died six years later when Simon was only 15. And at this event, his mother, Linda, says that the death of his father left him devastated. And after that, she says her son began to exaggerate and at times seemed unable to separate fact from fiction. She was quoted as saying, his intelligence was off the scale but he was also a child in many ways his father's death completely destroyed him which you know fair i'm sure it was very traumatic oh yeah for sure the death of a parent is never an easy thing i don't think so simon went to film school at nyu and found some success as a photographer and as a music video director but his debut film Two Days, Nine Lives, uh, was financed by his family and was described by a BBC reviewer as, quote, a continuous volley of dead conversations, end quote. Which, yikes, my guy. That's a big yikes, but also I feel like, um, I've, uh, I feel like that's a pretty accurate description for a few different movies that I've seen parts of. (laughs) Oh my god. Um, So the film was never released and his family lost the investment, which he promised his mother he would repay, but never did. Mm. Another yikes. This man's not off to a great start. Nope. So while there was some inherited family money, his mother says that Simon ran through it long before he met Brittany. He told Brittany that he was the heir to a fortune and that he was... And he was able to impress her with his knowledge of art and knack for languages and music. His mother says he had a photographic memory and he had no problem spinning tales to get his way with women on both sides of the Atlantic, leaving a trail of broken hearts, unpaid bills, and angry fiancés. A woman he met in London in 1999 later described Simon as, quote, very manipulative. And she said that he lied to her about his wealth and properties. And she said, quote, he usually cons good, honest and trustworthy people. And she wrote that in a letter to the FBI, which was meant as a warning to others because of how 
much he manipulated her, she was like, I'm going to the FBI with this matter. That is an interesting take. I don't think I've ever met, never, never have I ever heard of somebody, somebody being so upset with a man that they reported him to the FBI. <laughs> right? Like, that seems... It's a lot. He, he, you That's can tell a lot. he's a shitty person. Right? <laughs> it's going to be a no from me. Um, so, his ex also said in that letter to the FBI that simply because he cannot comprehend that a person can be so dis- deceptive to that extent, it's almost unbelievable. I believe he is sick and lies continuously, defrauding people, hurting people, including his own family. He himself has admitted this to me. Hmm. Big red flag. That's a super big red flag. Um, Richard Golub, a New York attorney and best-selling author who got involved with Simon writing a script for what became a movie called Factory Girl, says that he wasn't very good. He wasn't a very good screenwriter, but he could spin self-aggrandizing stories. Finally fed up, Richard investigated Simon and confronted him. He said... I really don't want to be in business with someone who is flim-flamming people. And you've left a trail of people behind that are going to sue you because you took their trust funds or inheritance or conned them into investing in projects you never delivered. Later that night, Simon called Richard and said, uh, Look, you really have my number and I've really led... I've led this really fucked up life and I really have conned and cheated a lot of people, but I'm turning over a new leaf. I doubt it. (laughs) I also seriously doubt it. So several times, Brittany was confronted with evidence of Simon's checkered past, but refused to believe it or chose to ignore it. Mm -hmm. She was in love and fiercely loyal. And after the late George Hickenlooper, director of Factory Girl went public with criticism of Simon for claiming that he produced the film but never got credit for it. There was a late night call from Brittany with whom he had been friends. Hickenlooper said in a interview days before his death in October that Brittany pleaded with him to remove a scathing overview of Simon's frivolous lawsuit that he posted on IMDb. She said to him, if you ruin my husband, you're going to ruin me. Hickenlooper recalled Brittany saying, I just said, look, you've got to clear your head on this, honey. And I just knew that she was so fragile that anyone who lovingly gave her the time of day and could put up with her um, intricities that she would be attached to immediately. Mm-hmm. So despite the evidence, Brittany believed that Simon would provide financial security and help her revive her career and allow her to fulfill her lifelong dream of being a mother. In the first year together, they did find a creative flowering of sorts, and he shot hundreds of photos of her and he would play the piano at night while she laid under the grand piano listening, which sounds very romantic. It's very romantic, very picturesque, very wild. It's about to get yikes, though. Uh, I had a feeling. (laughs) Brittany had been completely taken with Simon and... When And what she didn't know was when they met that what Simon was nearly broke in an illegal battle with a producer on a movie called White Hotel named Susan Stewart Potter, who hired him to direct and then discovered that he was trying to cut her out of the project. He eventually paid Stewart 
a legal settlement of more than $300,000. And when Simon moved into Britney's house, he didn't mention that he was leaving his last fiance with thousands in unpaid rent on LA apartments or that he had written numerous bad checks. Shortly after they married, Britney paid $10,000 to a casting director who sued Simon over a bounced check. Mm. Yikes. Yeah. Don't love that. No. You know what they say? I don't want no scrubs. No scrubs here. None. None available. Brittany, you should have you dumped this scrub. Mm-hmm. Brittany, we don't want no scrubs. There's a, there was a whole <laughs> song written about it. You should have heard it. It's, a, I, it's an anthem. It is an anthem. One that should be listened to. So a close family friend of Brittany and a reporter for The Hollywood Reporter named Alex Block said... I first met Simon shortly after their marriage, when Brittany brought him to our house for Father's Day in 2007. Simon led the conversation, played piano, and went outside to smoke a cigar, which Brittany hurried to light. Simon told us they had to take extreme security precautions because they were under surveillance by helicopters and their phone was bugged. He said that he had hired a private eye who gave Simon names of family and friends who cheated, stole, from them or sold their information to the tabloids. It turned out to be one of the few times we saw them in the next two years. Simon, as many of Brittany's family members and friends came to believe, he had created a web of paranoia around Brittany and used to se- use it to separate her from anyone who might have challenged his dominance. Simon even told terrible tales of his mother, apparently to keep her from telling Brittany and Sharon the truth about him. Linda Monjack says that she met her daughter-in-law only once at a dinner in New York in 2007, but Simon communicated with his mother by phone and email nearly every day. So, Hmm. clearly Simon had entered Brittany's life at a very vulnerable time. She had quickly risen and fallen so far in such a short amount of time that even fans had to wonder what was happening. Most of her final films headed straight to video and it was a sad chapter in what had been a career filled with promise she was incredibly talented chris schneider who worked with britney's first hollywood agent iris burton said there were very few people who could do what she could do in comedy she had a lucille ball kind of humor and she was a force of nature in comedy but she could also do drama which is very rare At the time, Brittany was living with both her mom, Sharon, and her husband, Simon. People close to her said that she was living in a house that she hated, a city where she no longer wanted to live, and her career was imploding. And she was dealing with the constant burden of being a caregiver for her mom and her husband. Mm -hmm. Sharon was a breast cancer survivor, suffering from debilitating neuropathy, and Brittany had an unusually close relationship with her mother. Her mom often said that they grew up together which is weird. That is definitely a weird thing to say. And they referred to each other as soulmates. Sharon had dedicated herself to her daughter and really made her focus in life around Brittany and her career. And in turn, Brittany had put her career on hold twice when Sharon had bouts of breast cancer shortly after making Clueless and then again in 2003. And Brittany was also taking care of her 39-year-old husband, Simon. For nearly a year, Simon had been having seizures and a month earlier suffered an apparent heart attack. When he had a seizure, his arms and legs would be flailing on 
their big bed and Brittany would rush to his side although weakened by anemia and gasping for breath from her own ailments Brittany held his 300 pound body down using a spoon to keep him from swallowing his own tongue yikes that's a lot yeah his health really took a turn for the worse during their second year of marriage after he fell off a ladder during a photo shoot in la this accident apparently started the seizures which he said were tied to brain tumors his mother said that his use of prescription medications after the marriage was a surprise to her because before that he hadn't he had been very adamant about not using drugs hmm she also believes that her son developed uh, Munchausen's syndrome, where a person oh, fakes an Munchausen's. illness to get attention. Yeah, I was actually thinking that when you said that, I was like, it's very weird that like her mom, who's having bouts of breast cancer, and her husband would be sick at the same time. That's unusual, to say the least. Very, very unusual. Um, his mom was skeptical about the cause of his seizures and believes her son could somehow make it appear that his heart stopped. However, Simon claimed that he had various heart problems and that he needed open heart surgery. Hmm. We'll come back to that later. Um, (laughs) okay. So clearly Brittany had her hands full with being the family breadwinner, taking care of her mom and her husband, and also trying to you know revive her career the thing that Mm -hmm. she was most passionate about um so simon joked that his wife's bathroom was her comfort zone he called it the britney sized room which was a jab at her height and recalled how she spent hours sampling the cosmetics and perfumes that crowded every inch of counter space critically studying her body image, sometimes singing to herself or writing bits of poetry in a journal, listening to music music, or paging through magazines from which she would tear out pages with clothes she just had to have. Brittany was five foot two and was extremely self-conscious about her height. In the early 2000s, Brittany lost a large amount of weight, which led to rumors of a cocaine addiction. In 2005, Brittany disputed the claims to Jane Magazine, saying, quote, No, just for the record, I have never tried it in my entire life. And people close to Brittany say that she lost the weight to make herself appear taller. Martha Coolidge, who directed Brittany in the 2009 Lifetime movie Tribute, said, quote, she felt she was short. So one reason she controlled her weight was the thinner you are, the taller you look. She was so knowledgeable about her body and that would and and that would exaggerate her height. Which just sounds like not a good mind space to be in. No, and like I'm not exactly a tall person either. If I feel like I need to be taller, I just wear shoes with heels or like platform styled stuff i don't like starve myself to make myself appear taller i know and i i think it's probably just amplified by her like constantly being in the public eye and being on screen yeah that would definitely be a big impact especially if like not to say there would have been but like i know that sometimes tabloids will like be like is so and so gaining weight or like you know whatever it is i can't remember what it's called but like if one of them had done that then yeah that would make it way worse right exactly so 
In November 2009, Brittany went to Puerto Rico for six weeks to shoot a film called The Caller, which was a low-budget thriller that was the latest in a series of low-budget movies that she was doing in the past three years, mostly for the payday, um, Mm. which sucks. But Brittany had arrived in San Juan, Puerto Rico with Simon, her mother, and her Maltese puppy, Clara. And fun fact, her puppy was named after Britney's favorite old-time movie star, Clara Bow, um, who was another Hollywood it girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but that fun cute. fact aside, <laughs> very cute. Press reports later said that she was fired after the first day and that Simon had been drunk on set. But the movie producers probed by Simon's lawyer called it a mutual parting. Brittany denied media reports that she had been fired from the project after being difficult on set and cited creative differences. Simon said that Brittany had been unhappy when she realized the thriller had signed or that she had signed on to had morphed into more of a horror movie. Simon and Brittany had said there's too much Santeria in it. Simon recalled Brittany saying, I've been offered lots of horror movies and never done them and I'm not going to start now. Which, rude. Horror movies, justice for those. Mm. I'm not a big horror movie person, but, like, see, isn't the line, though, between thriller and horror, like, not that deep? Like, if you're doing thriller movies, like, why wouldn't you make the jump into horror? I I think that it's probably because there was a bit more of a stigma around doing horror, especially as, like, a woman, Mm. you know? Yeah, maybe she didn't want to be boxed in either. Because I know that sometimes people get, like, cast into types and then that type sticks with them forever. Yeah, and also I think, like, especially in, like, the early 2000s horror movies, had a very distinct feel about them. And she probably just did not want to be a part of that, which, honestly, I understand. Um, But I love those movies, so no hate. But yeah. I, I do understand why you might not want to do that for career-wise. Yeah, like, like, her reasoning seems fine and everything, but for some reason, like, I feel like it was definitely something else that took her off the film rather than her having a issue with it being a horror movie. But who's to say? Well, I, I think it's probably because she got fired because of Simon and yeah. he fucked her over. Mm-hmm. That, and to they're me, just sounds... trying to save face. Yeah, exactly. That, to me, sounds a lot more... Uh, believable after she parted the film uh, one day after one day of shooting when the producers insisted on banning simon from the set Brittany and simon proceeded to stay eight more days uh vacationing in san juan so that simon when like he i guess said quote it wouldn't be a wasted trip which just feels very selfish to me yeah it does it is a selfish thing to say Especially because he got her fired from the project, which, but, like. Yeah, he gets her fired from the project, and then she's like, okay, like, let's go home. And then he's like, nah, I want to stay in vacation for a little while. Yeah, right? It almost seems like a plan, but, like. Who's to say? Who's to say? Um, But but Simon and Sharon caught colds, something called Staphylococcus. I did have to practice that word a few times, but I think I said it right. Staph alacoccus? Yes. Um, 
so Sharon and Simon caught that while they were there. And on the flight home to LAX on November 28th, 2009, Simon had what he described as a mild heart attack. Simon said that Brittany administered CPR while on the plane, even though Brittany was quoted as calling it an asthma attack. News reports of Simon's medical problems and Brittany being replaced on the movie Caller became the latest in a barrage of negative press about the couple. Over the years, her use of prescription drugs had really increased as she coped with the pain from the car accident I mentioned earlier that happened mm-hmm. right after Clueless. And she took out medication for seizures after an incident during the production of 8 Mile and coped with other health issues. That all added to her problems shortly after her return from Puerto Rico when she caught the same cold that her mom and Simon had. Mm-hmm. And she took an antibiotic called Biaxin, migraine pills, and cough medicine, and an over-the-counter nasal spray. The day that she died, spoiler, mm-hmm. she had also taken an antidepressant drug and an anti-seizure drug, and an anti-inflammatory, and a beta blocker that Simon gave her, as well as Vicoprofen to ease the pain from her period. But Brittany kept getting sicker, and her laryngitis during her final 10 days was the worst of her life. She was also weakened by her period. The second, she had it twice that month, I guess, which is not normal. No, I was going to say, homegirl sounds like her health is going down, and is going down fast. Yeah, and because she was having her period for the second time that month, it was causing anemia and cut her red blood count into a quarter of what it normally was. Yeah. Which sounds like a yikes. I hate uteruses. Same. What a fucking terrible joke. What a joke. Just take mine out when I'm born. Give it back to me later. Um, on her final night, Brittany was gasping for air, her lips turning blue from lack of oxygen as her lungs filled with fluid. Despite her problems, Brittany had not seen a doctor for six weeks, although she consulted by phone a few times and had talked to a pharmacist. Late Friday afternoon on her final weekend, she made a doctor's appointment for that upcoming Monday, but never got there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being sick had uh, become something that Brittany had just accepted. There was no sense of urgency to see a doctor because she and Simon had practiced their own form of holistic medicine, um, basically just picking and choosing amongst doctors and medicines depending on what Simon thought sounded best. Oh, wow. That sounds really reliable. Yes. They were always afraid of the paparazzi would find out they were sick and that it would hurt their job prospects in Hollywood. That was one reason why Brittany didn't go to the emergency room that night, and it was an excuse for Simon not to call for help when he had seizures or more of his own heart problems. Mm -hmm. It was also why Brittany used false names to hide her identity at the pharmacy. One pharmacist named Eddie Bubar... Of Eddie's Drugs in West L.A. (laughs) Which, okay. All right, Eddie. Okay, Eddie. All right, Eddie. I see what you're doing here. Um, He became alarmed by the frequency and amounts of drug purchases and suspected they were doctor shopping, which basically means getting drugs from multiple sources. Mm -hmm. And he confronted Simon in August 2009 and told them to take their business elsewhere. 
Eddie said that he feared they were being over-medicated, though he never imagined it would have such dire consequences. Simon and Sharon got their drugs under their own names, but Brittany preferred an alias um, known as Lola Manilo, which Eddie was aware of. Which, also, I'm just gonna say it, like, as, like, a person selling her those things, if you feel like she is over-medicating, maybe it's also your responsibility to say something? I don't know. Just a thought. Yeah, that, that's, there's a lot to unpack there, but you would think that if you're the person who's selling the drugs, you suspect that they're overusing the drugs, and that they're doctor shopping, then that would be your responsibility to be like, hey... I think that this, this is a problem. I I have an inkling that you have a problem. Mhm. Oh, I hate it. Um so the paranoia that Brittany had about the public and the industry learning of her medical problems played into Simon's conspiracy theories about people being out to get her. He stoked that paranoia and used it to gain control over Brittany in a surprisingly short amount of time. On the eve of Brittany's death, while she slept on the big bed beside him after midnight, Simon and Sharon talked about the practical aspects of their plan to move to New York. Um, They discussed selling the big house that Brittany had purchased in 2003 for $3.9 million. Another fun fact, it was the former house of Brittany Spears who lived there with Justin Timberlake. Huh, that is weird. And a fun fact. A fun fact, indeed. Brittany always felt the tri-level Mediterranean at the top of the rising Glen Road was unlucky, and she wanted to start fresh in 2010 in New York City, where she could start a family with Simon, and he could find work as a screenwriter and a director, and she'd star in independent films that would revive her career. That Saturday night was chilly and windy, and the electrical power kept going out, and the black and the backup generator failed. They used flashlights when it when it went dark, afraid the candles near the wheezing ox- oxygen machine Simon relied on to ease his sleep apnea and bouts of asthma and frequent respiratory infections. This man is apparently sick with literally everything that a person could be sick of. He's like, I <laughs> like, got asthma. I got seizures. I got heart attacks. I got sleep, I got apnea. sleep apnea. He's got a lot of problems, is like, what I'm gathering like, from this information. Bro, just, just, that's a lot. That's a lot all happening. A lot's happening. <laughs> that's almost too much. Um, I'm starting to not believe your story fully. Uh, I'm just mm-hmm. gonna put that out there. Yes, I am also having my my super suspicions about this man. Your super susness, hey? The super sus. So at about 3 a.m. on Brittany's final morning, the power had returned to the Hollywood Hills after a 45-minute blackout. Brittany woke and made her way to a little balcony off her bedroom. At uh, her request, Simon phoned upstairs to Sharon and said that Brittany needed her. Sharon came down carrying the puppy Clara, and what she saw really freaked her out. Her mom said, quote, she was lying on the piano trying to catch her breath. I said, baby, get up. And she said, mommy, I can't catch my breath. Help me. Help me. Simon recalled, she said to her mom, I'm dying. I'm going to die. Mommy, I love you. That's so sad. I can't even imagine that you 
Also, like, the mom just, like, lets her daughter get to that point and says nothing. I'm sorry, what? She's living in this house with them. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, is I was wondering about that because it's, like, the mom, if you're doing your job as a mom, I think you would notice that your daughter's health was declining and maybe, like, do something about it. But, like, at at the same time, too, she's also got this, like, fear of the emergency room or whatever it is. So she's like, no, well, like, I'm dying and now I'm going to die alone because I can't go to the emergency room. Like, how fucked up is that? The whole situation is effed. Mm-hmm. Sharon and Femin were sympathetic, but Frit- er, but Brittany frequently complained about her ailments, so they didn't take her seriously. Oh, whatever. Mom, I'm dying. <laughs> Mom, I'm dying. And she's, like, laboring to breathe. And the mom's like, mm. We'll see. I'll I'll call you tomorrow. Just remember, the night before, her lips were literally blue because of lack of oxygen. Yeah, that's what I mean. And it's like, you don't... That... that, That's a lot. Sis, maybe take it seriously. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. You would hope so. But they didn't. So, yeah, right? Um... It makes me really angry. Um, her mom said, quote, she was always so dramatic. I have replayed that so many times. She asked if she could use the oxygen, oxygen, but Simon said her heart could stop with oxygen. And anyway, he had another seizure, a long, horrific seizure. Wait. So he literally has like an oxygen machine. She can't breathe. And he's like, no, I don't think you really need it. Like I need it for my seizures. This man, he literally was like, I don't think oxygen is going to help your heart. And she's like, because my heart's not the problem, I need to breathe. (laughs) I have no oxygen, Simon. Why do you take my oxygen away? (laughs) Simon, what the fuck? Anytime you say something about the Simon guy, I'm like, I'm like, there's no way this man is real. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he just says and does things and you're like, what the fuck? Like, what, what party you sat down that day and was like, yeah, this is like a normal thing. You know, this man is crazy. I think the mom might also be a little crazy too. I have a feeling. I don't know. So after that, um, Sharon then made her daughter hot tea with ginger and lemon. And she said that her lips were parched like she was dehydrated. So I made her drink that. Like, sis, I don't think tea's gonna help at this point. No. How about water and oxygen? How about basic life <laughs> things first? Oxygen. Instead of being like, she looks thirsty, I'm gonna feed her lemon tea. With ginger. Don't forget that. Oh, you know, because when you can't breathe, the last thing you need is an upset stomach too, I guess. Right? <laughs> Um, so Brittany returned to her peach bathroom around 7.30 a.m., followed minutes later by Sharon. And she said, Mommy, I really don't feel well. And as soon as Brit, And then Brittany collapsed around 8 a.m. And Sharon pulled her daughter to her and screamed for Simon to call 911 while he moved Brittany into a cold shower. Sharon, on instructions from the 911 operator, talked Simon through resuscitation efforts until the paramedics arrived. The LA Fire Department responded to a medical request at their home, um, and firefighters attempted to rescue her on scene. She was then rushed to 
a medical center with Sharon and Simon following by car. Simon remembered being directed to a children's waiting room with little green chairs. And around 10 a.m., the physician said that they couldn't save her. Simon said, quote, what about medical science? Um, Isn't there anything that can keep her alive? Do anything. Um, But then they told us that she hadn't made it. And I'm like, this motherfucker, does he know anything? What about (laughs) medical science? Can't you like keep her alive? And the doctor's looking at him and he's like, well, she's fucking dead. So no, no. (laughs) Maybe if you brought her, her, her here earlier, maybe if when she was starting to get really sick, you brought her in to see a doctor, then there might have been a solution. (laughs) You fucked up, Simon. Fucking Simon. Um, so Simon at first refused an autopsy because he didn't want her beautiful body violated. Oh, fuck off. He said, he said it felt wrong and went against his orthodox Jewish tradition. But the L.A. coroner, coroner insisted, eventually finding that she died from pneumonia, anemia, and a toxic cocktail of prescription drugs a perfect storm of ailments and over medication she had been sick for at least two weeks said the assistant la coroner and they had already had they taken her to a doctor or hospital it would have been treatable that's what i'm saying see this fucking guy i swear to god first of all so much fraud (laughs) second of all wait did i already say that anyways he's a piece of shit I don't like this guy. What about medical science? <laughs> what about medical science? Bring my wife so- back. <laughs> Brad, it's too late. You fucked that shit up months ago. When you told her, nah, everybody's out to you don't get need you. Oxygen. You, can't, you don't need oxygen. <laughs> oxygen, not for your heart. No, not for you. <laughs> I, I Keeping me alive. More important than you. No keep you alive. Oh, wait, now you're dead. Right. Oh, no. You're dead. Um, so it took a few months before the mystery around her death was solved. Amid speculation of foul play and potential overdose, the L.A. County Coroner's Office issued a statement on February 4th, 2010, saying that Brittany died of community-acquired pneumonia with contributing factors of iron deficiency anemia. Or, yeah. Uh, and multiple drug intoxication, per the New York Times. A spokesperson for the office said that the drugs were all prescription drugs, but didn't specify what they were. She reportedly contracted the flu while filming the caller um, in Puerto Rico, and Brittany was buried at the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Hollywood Hills. Now, this story gets a little crazy, because five months following the death of Brittany, Simon died too. What? On May 23rd, Simon died in the same bedroom at the age of 40, curiously from the same causes that Brittany died from. What? No. Yeah. What? He died from pneumonia and severe, I mean, or, yeah, like, like, from being anemic. Um, He, too, had been taking a lot of prescription drugs, but the coroner ruled that out as a direct cause of death. Even so, Simon's drug use and doctor shopping, along with the um, other factors, was under investigation 
for uh, from the California Attorney's Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement. Um, it was looking into celebrity abuse of prescription meds, doctor shopping, and the use of aliases. Um, now, I mentioned earlier that Simon claimed to have heart problems and that he told people he needed open-heart surgery. Mm-hmm. But curiously, his autopsy showed a healthy, slightly enlarged heart, and his doctor in Burbank told authorities that Simon had taken an EKG exam shortly before his death and that his heart was fine. <laughs> wow. How bizarre. No, honey, you don't need so- oxygen. My heart is ill. I need it. Then she died from no oxygen and his heart is fine. How strange. How strange the world the world is. So, uh, I just want to get a, give a little disclaimer before I get into this next little bit. Okay. I'm going to briefly talk about some theories um, about the situation. I just want to say that these are just theories. They're not proven and I'm not saying that they're true, but I am going to talk about them. Okay. <laughs> I am here for it. So, obviously, Brittany's death and then Simon's subsequential death seemed very sus. It's super sus. Super sus. Um, so, Brittany and Simon both died in the same house from the same cause. And, obviously, people were looking at the other person who lived in the house with them. Brittany's mom, Sharon. Oh. Okay. Okay. Because she was also <laughs> sus. Like, I also thought already that the mom was sus. Right. So Sharon was very quickly to deny any suspicion after Simon's death, but she publicly said, it is with great relief that Simon's preliminary autopsy findings have been released so the media suspicions can stop. As I was sure of, just like my daughter Brittany, there was no kind of drug overdose. Even though, like, they did say that it was in part due to the drug she was taking. So I'm yeah. like, Sharon, honey, like, I'm sorry, but... Mm. Sharon, you're only looking at what you want to see. You're forgetting the rest of it. Contributing factors mean it was a part of the death. <laughs> right. In November 2013, Brittany's father, Angelo, had his... He was looking at the situation he's like hold up this is sus like i need to figure what's going on on out here right Mm -hmm. so he had his daughter's hair blood and tissue tested by an independent company and this toxology report by toxologist ernest lykissa uh lykissa um i don't know how you say that last name claimed that britney had high concentrations of 10 heavy metals in her system the Ernest wrote that the only logical explanation would be exposure to these metals administered by a third party er, perpetrator with likely criminal intent. Um, But Dr. Bruce Goldberg, who was in charge of forensic medicine at the University of Florida, dismissed the reports and he, he thought they were ridiculous. But her dad did not. He mm-hmm. said, he told Good Morning America uh, in an interview that he said, quote, I have a feeling that there was definitely a murder situation here. Yeah, it's poison. Yes, yes, I know that. <laughs> I mean, I kind of agree with him. Just, there's just too many weird things. There's too many, too many weird things. There are a lot of weird things. So, um, 
Concluding that Britney was allegedly poisoned is an inflammatory statement that is baseless allegation and outright outrageous statement to make on a single hair test, Dr. Goldberg told CNN. Britney's autopsy showed no signs of poisoning and a hair test alone without any clinical signs or symptoms cannot be used to establish poisoning. Um, since Britney's father hadn't been in her life much as she had a really tight-knit relationship with her mom, Sharon was pissed and denied his claims in an open letter to The Hollywood Reporter on November 25th, 2013. Hmm. So, I just texted you the her open letter and I thought you could read it for us. All right. Sharon says... I have chosen to stay out of the limelight since the tragic and sudden death of my wonderful, talented, loving daughter four years ago this December 20th. From the day of her birth, Brittany was my precious, more dear to me than anything or anyone in the universe. I have been devastated by her loss and that of my son-in-law, Simon Monjak, and have remained in seclusion in my mourning. I have no choice but to come forward in the face of inexcusable efforts to smear my daughter's memory by a man who may be her biological father, but was never a real father to her in her lifetime. Angelo Bertolotti has relocated to California in his old age to claim that he is here for Brittany, as he never was in life, and he has made outrageous statements over the past few years, culminating in this latest madness, that my darling daughter was murdered. His claims are based on the most flimsy of evidence and are far more of an insult than an insight into what really happened, as I will explain to you shortly. First, I want you to know the little of the... the, the, First, I want you to know a little of the real story. I raised Brittany alone. We didn't have much at first, but we always had each other. My daughter and I were our only family, and we're inseparable and always there for each other in the good times and the bad. She never left my side as I battled cancer twice. And I was there for her during the trials and tribulations of her beautiful life and career. Angelo was not there at all after age one. He certainly wasn't around during the 12 years he spent in prison or three criminal felony convictions. Throughout her childhood, I was Brittany's only parent and sole support. No bond could be stronger. Angelo did come out of the woodwork when Brittany was a teenager and found success in a number of TV shows just before she was in Clueless. But she quickly saw him for who he was and didn't want anything to do with him. He now claims to have a few meetings with Brittany over the years where he took the occasional photograph, but those must have been brief moments because I was with her most of the time at home and when she was working, and he was never, ever around. He has admitted to not seeing her at all during the three years of her too short life. It sends pain through my heart when I read, in recent reports about uh, Bertolotti's lab testing results, that the family said, meaning Angelo, uh, because he was never her family in reality. She and I and our extended family and close friends were her family, and she grew in years and professionalism and was beloved by many, many people, including fellow performers and great artists in Hollywood. In light of the recent publicity about a lab test Angelo has done, I have asked for some knowledgeable people, and they tell me that an analysis from a sample of hair is not considered dependable unless it is backed up by tests of tissue and blood and other analysis, which he did not do. The coroner did, but they show no similar results. I am also told one... Or I am also told one lab may give different results than another lab in terms of heavy metals, and the proper method requires multiple tests before the results are leased. Um, the lab Angelo used, if you can call it that, is an internet site that farmed out the actual testing and then wrote horribly untrue things under the guise of analysis. It mentioned rat poison as a possible cause and claimed to be able to say that a third party murdered my beloved daughter. 
to even mention that the heavy metals that were listed in his tests are rat poison, leading to articles suggesting Brittany ingested uh, that or anything like it is absurd. If she had, don't you think it would have shown up in the coroner's test of her blood and tissue? A reputable expert will tell you uh, that, what, that what this lab did is an ethical violation of the highest order. To even pretend to be able to draw such conclusions on unreliable evidence is the real crime. This report conveniently ignores what any good scientist will tell you. A hair sample can be affected by many outside factors, including hair dye, hairspray, prescription medication, foods, smoking the occasional cigarette, and environmental factors. One cause we now know may have been toxic mold that was eventually discovered in that house, which may have been what actually killed her. We will never know for sure. However, we do know that the Los Angeles County Coroner did extensive tests and found that she died of natural causes, and now she is a real living angel in heaven. Angelo has also formed the Brittany Murphy Foundation as if he is fit to carry on her memory. Like everything else Angelo and his collaborator Julia Davis has done, this ca is calculated to make them money and bring them the fame they desperately crave. They say they want to do a documentary and write a book and this whole stunt is merely publicity to fuel their aspirations. I can only imagine the horror uh, that would be in that book and documentary, based on what has been said about Davis's earlier work, The Terror Within. Davis and Angelo have told bald-faced lies in order to promote their products by falsely associating my daughter and son-in-law in their story. Let me be clear. I'm quite confident Brittany never cooperated with Julia Davis, never signed any statement in support of her, never met with her, and barely knew that she existed. Davis did not try to contact Brittany through her agent, but, she di but all she got back was a letter from the CAA, then Brittany's talent agents, which we have, telling Davis that their client knew nothing about her claims and would not meet with her. Davis's grievances and the government agency she worked for may be real, and if so, I feel bad for her, but she has no right to drag my daughter's memory into it to serve her agenda. I am sorry to be so forthright in saying this, but my time has come to but the time has come to bring out into the open the lies that Angelo and Davis have now told that Brittany can't defend herself. Uh they did it simply to promote their interests, their book, Davis's documentary and career. The time has come for their false statements to be exposed and rebuked. Angelo has only shown that he wants to trade on Brittany's life career and good reputation, even at the cost of putting a cloud over her memory. His actions have hurt the people she, uh, she actually lived with, loved and considered her dearest friends and family. I have heard from many that Brittany's closest friends about, uh, about the awful things said on the internet or in the media about them when the, their only crime was to truly love Brittany. This has been done by people willing to perpetuate awful lies for their own personal personal aggrandizement and enrichment. Yeah. Uh, Angelo and Davis will do what they do, but I can no longer remain silent. I must speak the truth. I want my Brittany to be remembered as the darling person she was, for the giant talent she showed the world, and left behind in her movie and TV appearances, and for the friendships and loving relationships that were a part of her life. She was my baby. We stood together throughout Brittany's life. Now I must stand for her again. It is time for those who really knew and loved her to put those who want to exploit her on notice. Your lies will no longer be tolerated and as long as I live I will continue or and as long as I live will continue to be exposed. What are your thoughts? I still feel like there's something very weird about the whole thing. So she might be correct in what she says about the husband like if he wasn't around we don't really know, but to me it feels weird that the only public statement she issued is more so about how offended she is by her ex-partner than it is about how upset she is about Britney's passing, you know? Right. So, um, that's what 
Sharon had to say about the situation. And Brittany's dad ended up dying in 2019 at the age of 92. The rat poison? In May 2020, though, a documentary called Brittany Murphy, an ID mystery, attempted to dig up the truth, but simply raised more questions, which still kind of remain to this day. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is what they said in their uh, press release about the film. Mm-hmm. Brittany Murphy is a rising star who had it all, beauty, fame, and success, but she also had secrets. When she is found dead in her Los Angeles home at just 32 years old, Hollywood and legends of fa- and legions of fans are left in disbelief. While her autopsy reveals she died of natural causes, many believe foul play is involved. And the program focused in part on Simon and Sharon, who, according to the documentary, embark on a bizarre media blitz, creating more questions than answers. Then, within months, Simon perishes under strikingly similar conditions in the same bed that he and Brittany once shared, only this time allegedly with Brittany's mother sleeping beside him. The the press release also stated... I'm getting to it. Hold on. (laughs) The press release also stated... Uh, in an exclusive final interview, the late Angelo, Bur- or like her dad, uh, cast out on the conclusions that she died of natural causes and reveals bizarre allegations against other family members. So, basically, one of the theories is that Sharon and Simon were having a relationship, mm-hmm. and that's why they they people who believe this theory say that that's why she was murdered mm-hmm. and when simon wasn't doing what the sharon wanted that's why he was also murdered See. and it's interesting to think about that theory because so earlier i mentioned a man named alex block who was a hollywood or was a reporter and a family friend, but mm-hmm. he also worked for the Hollywood Reporter. Um, apparently, he had known Brittany for like a very long time, like ever since she was a, a young kid. Mm-hmm. And he said that right after Brittany's death, Sharon and Simon came to him and really wanted him to write a book about Brittany and her experiences and like all this stuff and did like a bunch of interviews with him and like or whatever for this book Mm -hmm. and he was like this is really weird and he found out that like a lot of the things that like simon was saying were just like flat out lies Mm -hmm. and he like that's something he noted and he did this like big article in the hollywood reporter about uh and her final final days Mm -hmm. and I just think it's really interesting that they would go on, like, a media blitz right after her death. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as he dies, the mom says nothing. Yeah. Okay. So, first, I would like to start with... <laughs> <laughs> if my fiancé, who will someday be my husband, <laughs> if I died, regardless of if I lived with him and my mom and my family or whoever else... If they were sharing a bed, I would come back to haunt them. That is not something that happens. That is not something that happens. <laughs> well, that's alleged. That's alleged. That's not confirmed. Either that's way, just, I don't uh... care if it's alleged. I would hear rumors from wherever I was in the afterlife, and I would come back. Number two. <laughs> but no, see, okay, my number two, I guess, will be my summary because, oh my goodness. Um. Okay, so... 
if they were having an affair, it would justify or not justify, but kind of like explain some of the other weird things. But to me and kind of what I'm getting is that you're right. Like it's definitely a warning sign to me that right after her passing, the two of them would be going around trying to like get money for doing like media stuff. So my thing and kind of my, I guess I'll call this my theory. My theory um, is that I think, I think that her mom was probably jealous at one point of her and her relationship with Simon because there was that whole time period too where she was like, oh yeah, no, my daughter's the most important thing in my world, right? Mm -hmm. And everything else. So I can kind of see that being a factor or like say if she wanted to be with Simon or was jealous of their relationship, that could be a thing too. But, um, right. But say also during that time period, they figured that because she was so ill that she wouldn't, would likely not be able to make money from movies anymore. Maybe they figured they would make more money from her death than they would from her being alive. It's also interesting to think about the night that Brittany died while she was sleeping. Mm -hmm. Simon and Sharon were up talking about the move to New York and how they were going to proceed and like... Yeah, the fact that they were up together doing things while she was in bed sick and then she died that night. Yeah, you're right. That is super weird. Like, coincidence? Possibly. Sus? Very. Very very sus. And, uh, And then, I don't know. See, my theory is still that the mom had something to do with it. Like, there's just something weird that doesn't quite sit right with me. It's either, like, a possessiveness thing or a money thing. But, like, if their, if their only source of income was, like, her being able to work and she couldn't work anymore, you know? That mm-hmm. in and of itself... Or her career would, was yeah. imploding. Right. That would explain why they might off her with the chances of being able to make money off of her death and selling off her assets again her home was worth like 3.9 million dollars exactly and why are they talking about selling her house and moving to new york with each other without her because that's still her asset right like why would that even be a topic for discussion between the two of them well i think like Brittany. From what I understand, Brittany was the one who was like, I want to move to New York so we can have a fresh start. But it is weird for, like, them to be, like, making the plans without her. Mm -hmm. Like, that just seems really strange to me. Like, she's a fucking 30-year-old woman. Yeah. And I get that she's sick, but that doesn't mean she wouldn't want to be a part of plans. Especially future plans that she wants to be a part of. They're sick. They're both like fucking yeah. on their deathbeds as well. He's like, got the oxygen that's what I don't she locked up so she can't use it. <laughs> you know? Simon's like, sorry, sis, you don't need this oxygen. I do. He's like, listen, my lungs are fine, but my heart, my heart needs this oxygen. You? Your heart is fine. And she's like, of course. Oxygen, not for lungs. Only for heart. Not for lungs. <laughs> makes no goddamn sense no the whole thing's very weird so yeah no i'm i'm gonna hop on the boat of the theory of the mom did it with the help of simon in order to get money from either inheriting her assets or with thinking that they would just make be able to make more money from her dead than she was with whatever she was doing with her career and her day-to-day life and then mm-hmm. and that's well, the thing the other thing is that 
Simon had a lot of unpaid debts, remember? Mm -hmm. Like, he had a lot of people who were after him for money. So I feel like there is a motivation there. Well, there is a motivation. And that's a motivation for getting rid of Simon, too. You, like, have his help or his association for the first part of things. Have him around to help with selling off the assets and everything else. And then once you don't have a use for him anymore. You out, Simon. Right? Because, I don't know. That definitely weird. And like I said, the whole thing that I just read out loud is basically a fuck you letter to the dad. It doesn't have anything to do with how sad or brokenhearted she is about her daughter passing. It's just like little clips here and mm-hmm. there of being like, this is the saddest day of my life or whatever. But it's mostly about how offended she is. Yeah, it, it really is. And like, I I would feel bad if, you know, like she actually, like there actually was no foul play or whatever and she's like hey guys i just like love my daughter and i'm getting accused but at the same time it's like why didn't you take her to the hospital earlier like 100 but that's what i was saying earlier like as a caring person like not even a parent like if i was to see a friend of mine who say has been sick for a long time and i'm used to her behaving a certain way if she was lounged over piano gasping for air like a fish out of water (gasps) and like saying she's dying i'd call the fucking ambulance i feel like if someone tells you i feel like i'm dying no matter how dramatic you think that they are you should take them seriously well and here's the thing too drama sure but you can tell the difference like if somebody's being dramatic they generally don't have blue lips and can stand on their own, <laughs> generally speaking. Yeah. So if they generally aren't asking to use the oxygen tank. That is what I'm saying. Like, there's all these different things where it's like a normal person would have called an ambulance. It's almost like it's mm-hmm. almost like the point was to have a long, drawn-out death that looked natural. That to, that, to me, is what it looks like. I feel like there is definitely something there. I don't know if, how I feel about the the autopsy that the dad did because i do feel like you know he probably like it does seem like it wasn't the most I think, uh, like scientific. i think he's right to be suspicious and i think he has every right to be suspicious but i do also think that the test he had done is is like what basically was said in the letter where it's not conclusive enough and it's not like taken in accordance with like a bunch of other things and it may not have actually come from a proper testing place exactly and the thing is is like i do feel like there is something to be said about you know not letting her go see a doctor or not taking her seriously and like just they basically just fucking let her die until the last moment prescription shopping between doctors but yet at the same time also practicing holistic medicine so that you don't actually see a doctor like that's also a very weird contradictory thing too to be telling people Mm-hmm. We practice holistic medicine, so I'm not going to take her to see a doctor or go to the emergency room because obviously we're suspicious and everybody's out to get us. But at the same time, we're going to use fake names and go and get just tons of medicine. Tons of medicine. Tons of it. I know. And that's not weird, apparently. Doesn't make any goddamn sense. Yeah, right? <sighs> but uh, what what else do you think? Or does that bring us to the end of our episode? That brings us to the end. Uh, Yeah. That that's my story for this week, guys. It was a bit of a doozy, definitely a doozy. And I'm glad that you uh, you had kind of got me excited for it in the beginning because I was like, "What kind of star is it gonna be?" And it was bananas. Yep, still don't trust. I don't trust Simon at all, and which I mean, he's dead now. So, 
Um, but yeah, I also <laughs> have weird feelings about the mom. But I guess I guess we'll never know, or at least don't know for now. Um, but on that note, you can follow us on our social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, all at Wheel of Crime. We do also have our email that you can reach out to us at, which is wheelofcrime at gmail.com. Um, please leave us a review on iTunes. Five stars, please. Also leave a comment. It can it, it can be something that you want us to see, and it could not be. But either way, at the end of the day, it does help us uh, with the charts and stuff like that. And you can check us out on our website, which is www.wheelcrime.com to see our a list of all of our episodes, kind of read a little bit about us, see how you can reach out to us or contribute. Those the, All that stuff is in there. And then we do also have our Patreon that you can check out, which uh, is at Wheel of Crime. And you can go there and uh, donate through there as well. And then there's different rewards for the different tiers if you want to get a little something out of it. And I think that's about it. That is it. And uh, we will see you guys next time. Have a very good week. Yes, have a great week. And the weather will keep getting nicer. And we'll see you, <laughs> we'll see you then. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. Thank you.